today is Freed by God's Forgiveness, page 21 of your study guides. Freed by God's Forgiveness. Doesn't feel good to be free? Yes. Ever been in a bind somewhere and, and uh, entrapped and all of a sudden you were freed and you felt the impact of that freedom? We know what it is to be free, right? Question number one on page 21. When was the funniest time you were caught red-handed? <laughs> when was the funniest time you were caught red-handed? I guess that's something we won't want to divulge, right? <laughs> but humor us, okay? <laughs> when was the funniest time you were caught red-handed? I guess for many of us, that would probably be childhood time, right? Anybody want to share? <laughs> <laughs> of course, whenever it was, I, I, we can I, look I, back I on it. Hmm? I was telling Sidney, then I could have locked my door. And then I thought it was Sidney, I was talking to <laughs> I was talking to I was telling her to lock my door. <laughs> <laughs> We can look back on those times and laugh about them, right? But it wasn't funny when it happened, was it? Okay, let's look at the point on page 22. Uh, let's have someone read the point on page 22. Uh, um, the point is, we deserve punishment, but God forgives. We deserve punishment. We all do, don't we? But God always forgives. He never fails to forgive us. Okay, let's have someone read the Bible Meets Life portion on page 22, please. My neighbor, Mr. Jones, was in his 80s. So when I saw all the class and people I knew it could only mean one thing. I felt convicted because I never talked to him about the Lord. I didn't know where he was making him to. Next day, Outside, showing the snow. I went to the driver and said, Mr. John, it's good to see you. When I saw the, the car, all the cars yesterday, I thought you had died. After a big laugh, he explained it was his birthday party. <laughs> I, I, wasn't, I wasn't about to let another opportunity pass, so I asked, Mr. John, if you had died yesterday, would you be in heaven today? Said, I can't go to heaven because when I was young, I fought, with, I fought my wife with another man. She left me to raise up five children alone. I have aided her all these years. That morning, I shared with Mr. John a truth, a truth to express to a group of unforgiving men and one adulterous woman. No matter what we've done, we can know the freedom of God's forgiveness. Okay. So we can use opportunities like that to win people to the Lord. Uh, a tremendous opportunity was presented there. Okay, let's see what the Bible has to say. Uh, John chapter 8, verses uh, 2 to 6. Let's have someone read those passages, those verses, please. As John went to the temple complex again, and all the people were coming to him, he sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in the dungeon, making her stand in the center. Teacher, 
they said yeah. This woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. And the law in the law Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? They asked they asked just to stop it in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and sat and started writing on the ground with his finger. Okay, now notice verse two. At the dawn, early in the morning, Jesus went to the temple complex. As Jesus, as he often did, this is a this was customary of of him. Of, of him uh, as we saw in John chapter seven, uh, he always did this. This was a common practice, and so he went to the temple area in order to teach those who came to the temple to meet with him every day for worship and study. Most likely due to his reputation for healing and teaching with authority, all the people were coming to him. They had heard all kinds of stories about people that he had healed of various illnesses and diseases and all kinds of stuff. And so his reputation spread. And, and as a result of it, the numbers grew more and more each day as he went to the temple. And so Jesus responded by, by assuming the position of a teacher. He sat down, probably one of the covered porches of the temple, and, uh, and he taught the people there, he began to teach them. Notice verse 3. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making a stand in the center. Remember those guys, the scribes and the Pharisees, who were they? We read a lot in scripture about the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, the scribes mentioned here were men who dedicated their lives they spend their entire lives in dedication to copying and studying the Jewish scriptures. That's all they did. Our Old Testament scriptures as we know it today, that's what they did. They studied it and, uh, and they were teachers and interpreters of the law of Moses. And so whenever anyone had an issue or a problem understanding what the law of Moses meant, they called the scribes. And they would explain it to them or they would interpret what the scriptures said. Anyone had a question about the scriptures? or how they were to be kept, the scribes were the people to go to. They could answer the questions. Anyone had a question about whether a law was broken or not? They go to the scribes, and the scribes could tell them specifically. And, uh, and so they were, they were consultants, they, they were consultants, they were counselors, they were teachers. And then there were the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a group of men who believed the supreme duty of all people was to obey God's law. They devoted themselves to teaching and obeying every law found in the Old Testament. Every single one of them. That's what they committed themselves to. Since people often had questions about how exactly to carry out parts of the law, the Pharisees were there to be able to tell them how to do it. The Pharisees also did something else. They, they would add their own interpretations which were called the tradition of the elders, according to Mark chapter 7 and verse 3. And, and though these teachers were not part of the inspired biblical text, the scribes and the Pharisees treated them as equally important as the inspired scriptures. All right, and so they, they treated them as, as equally authoritative as the scriptures. And so those are, those are the two types of people who took this woman 
who was caught in the act of adultery and they brought her to Jesus for judgment is what really they were thinking. And notice verse uh, 4 and 5. Teacher, they said, said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. Now this isn't hearsay, teacher. She was caught in the act. Somebody caught her. It wasn't gossip that someone picked up. She was actually caught in the act. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Kind of putting Jesus on the spot, right? So in order to pressure Jesus, they knew what kind of person he was, they knew the kind of reputation he had. And so in order to pressure him into making a false step, the religious leaders brought this woman whom they claimed was caught in the very act of adultery. They reminded him also of what the law of Moses said, just in case he was thinking about doing something else or saying something else. They reminded him that the law of Moses said that such a person who was caught in such an act should be killed specifically by stoning. They didn't say she was supposed to be killed. They specifically said by stoning. Their plan was to force Jesus to choose between upholding God's law and showing mercy. Now they knew that Jesus had a reputation for showing mercy. So they wanted to see if he was going to be merciful in this case as well. And then verse 6. The question to Jesus, what do you say? What do you think? What do you think we should do though? What do you think should happen to her? She was caught in this act. At first, Jesus didn't say anything. Instead, the Bible says in the verse, he stooped down and he started writing on the ground with his finger. Nobody knew. The scripture doesn't tell us what he wrote. But speculation says that he, he probably wrote some of the sins of those men who were accusing the woman. We don't know. That's speculation. These men were great students of the law, so, so was Jesus. As the son of God, he had, he had written the law, so he knew what the law says. You know, he, he didn't have to tell him the law of what the law of Moses said, because he knew what the law of Moses, he wrote it. He was the author of it. And so Jesus was writing some things, perhaps he was writing some things uh, that the law said about witnesses on the ground with his finger. We don't know. One of the things he may have written that came from scripture is Exodus 20:16, Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. That could have been one of the things he was writing. We don't know. Okay, let's have someone read the paragraph on page 24. Some people just like to throw rocks. Rocks of arrogance. Rocks of condemnation. Rocks of entrapment. In John 8, the scribes and Pharisees threw just those kinds of stones at a woman caught in the act of adultery. They brought this woman before Jesus, not because they cared about her and not because they wanted justice. They just wanted to use her to trap Jesus. There is no mention of the adulterous man, for example, which was a major oversight. Mm. For many rabbis, the three big sins were idolatry, murder, and adultery. These particular scribes and Pharisees sounded so righteous as they quoted scripture, Leviticus 20, verse 10. 
at the woman, but they only quoted the part that was convenient for them. They twisted the scripture into a self-righteous rope, which they used to tie her hands and put a noose around her neck. At the same time, let's not downplay the woman's guilt. She was caught in grievous sin. Perhaps she had the same mindset as many people today. Whatever I do is okay, as long as I don't get caught. If so, she was ignoring another biblical truth. Be sure your sin will catch up with you. Numbers 32, 23. God is holy, therefore he must punish sin. From the beginning, God has set a standard of righteousness, and failure to live by that standard brought death and separation from him. Adam disobeyed God and faced death. See Romans 5, 12. The consequences of sin and disobedience continue throughout scripture, and they continue today. In the end, no one gets by with their sin. The wages of sin is death. Okay, now notice some highlights that uh, we, we read there. Uh, the first one is for many rabbis, the three big sins were what? Idolatry, murder, and adultery. And, uh, and the scribes particularly sounded righteous when they quote the scripture on this particular, on these particular scriptures. Uh, the woman. Uh, and they quoted uh, what was convenient for them. Isn't that interesting that people do that today? At the same time, point number two, at the same time, let's not downplay the woman's guilt. She was caught in grievous sin. Okay? And then the third point that we notice here is that God is holy, therefore he must punish sin. From the beginning, God has set a standard of righteousness, and failure to live by that standard brought death and separation from him. Okay, question number two on page 24. Are we responsible for exposing the sins of others? Explain. Are we responsible? In other no. words, is it our business no. to, res to, to expose the sins of others? No. Explain. The Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. Okay, Bible says, judge not lest you be judged. Okay. We don't, uh, we don't make it our, our, our job or our duty to go out exposing sins. But if we use the scriptures the way God intends it to be used, the scriptures will expose individuals of their sins. Of course, we're going to get the blame because the messenger always gets killed, right? You're going to get the blame anyway. And it's, hap it's happening today. Whenever we use scriptures the way it is, it is quote, it's supposed to be used, People are convicted. It's not us who are convicting people. It's the word of God that convicts people. But we are the ones who get the blame for it. There's no, no problem with that. Nothing wrong with that. We're doing our jobs. But as we move to verses 9, 7 to 9, we'll see how Jesus expertly sprung the righteous leader's trap. Okay, they set a trap for him, but he sprung the trap. It didn't work. But before we get there, let's look at the activity we have on page 25. It says throwing stones, personal assessment, throwing stones. See that? How likely are you to criticize people in specific demographic groups? Liberals, conservatives, homosexuals, millennials, seniors, and so on. Not likely or very likely. Okay? How likely are we to convict or to condemn people? How do you respond when confronted by the failures of others? Use the following assessment to see whether you lean toward throwing stones 
or offering grace. Okay? The other one is, how often do you offend people via speech? Not really. Rarely or regularly. How often do we think we, 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 we offend people with our speech? And then the next one is, how often do we disagree with people online? And that's the social media one. Okay, and we see that a lot as we go on Facebook, right? We see how, how often people disagree with other people. And then the other one is, how often do you intentionally encourage co-workers, friends, and casual acquaintances? Rarely or regularly? Okay, now those are questions that only you can answer. Because only you and the Lord knows. Okay? But we, we encourage you to look at those questions and evaluate, do a personal assessment of yourself. And see how, see how it comes out. Okay, verses 7 to 9. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, Why would I sit among you should be first to throw the stone at us? Then he stood him down again and continued writing on the ground. Then they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. Okay, you can stop right there. Notice, uh, notice verse 7. Okay, when they persisted, in other words, they wouldn't give up. They wanted an answer from Jesus. What, what would you do? Clearly the scribes thought that they had trapped him. And we said, boy, we got him now. We got him in a box, and there's no way out. Either he had to condemn the woman, or, or condemn the woman and show he, was, he wasn't consistent in showing mercy, or he could say, he could say to her, just, just go about your business, forget about it, and not be faithful to scripture. Feeling certain he had finally put Jesus in the spot, which, from which there was no escape, they persisted to question him tried to corner him. At last, Jesus turned his attention to those accusing the woman. In other words, he turned the tables on them. He stopped his writing, stood up and told them, the one without sin among you should be the first one to throw a stone at her. Why did Jesus add this requirement? Just as importantly, what right did he have to add any requirement to the law at all? Well, first of all, Jesus had this requirement because he was more concerned with the condition of a person's heart than with his or her outward appearance. And we know that people are more concerned with the outward appearance of an individual than with the heart. Jesus does the opposite. Remember what the Bible says about God? Man looks at the outward appearance, but God does what? And Jesus was demonstrating that in this particular case. He challenged the woman's accusers to judge themselves before they judged her. Where do you stand? And he knew that none of them could pass his tests. So when he challenged them, he knew that none of them could come out of this unscathed. The next thing Jesus did was he had the authority we notice that Jesus had the authority to add this requirement and pass judgment over people because he's the Son of God. He had every right to do that. 
He's God. He wrote the law. He's the author of Scripture. And so as Jesus showed in the Sermon on the Mount, he has full authority not only to interpret the law, but also to point out God's intention behind the law. And that's what he wanted these Pharisees to see, exactly who he was. And then in verse 8, we notice that he stooped down and started to write on the ground again after he made those statements. What was he writing this time? Okay, two times he was writing on the ground. The first time he was writing, we don't know what he wrote, we can only speculate. The second time he stoops down and he begins to write again. Some scholars believe Jesus was listing some of the sins of the men who had brought the woman. We don't know. This seems possible, especially in the light of what he had just said about one without any sin being the first to cast a stone. So he said to them, you know, he among you that is without sin, let him be the first one to throw a stone at her. And then he sat down on the ground again and he started to write. So he probably, being the all-knowing God that he is, he was probably listing some of the sins of those persons who were standing around accusing this woman. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us that. That's just speculation. Okay. Others believe Jesus continued to write examples of the law the scribes and the Pharisees claim to love so much. Okay, that's another thing that could have been convicting for them in addition to listing their own sins. But again, the scripture doesn't tell us so we don't know specifically, but whatever it is, those leaders were convicted to the point where they did not persist in this woman being stoned and instead they turned and walked away. Verse 9, after hearing what Jesus said and watching him write again, the men began to walk away. They left. Notice that they left one by one, starting with the older men. What's the significance of that? Why did the older men leave first? Again, we can't know that either. We can't know for sure. Some scholars believe that they left first because... <laughs> <laughs> Some scholars believe that they left first because, because they were wiser and more quickly understood the impact of the words that Jesus spoke and, that, and what he wrote. Okay, so their wisdom acted some part in why the older ones left first. As they understood, God's Spirit convicted them of their sinfulness. They were wrong to use this woman for their own selfish motives to begin with. They were wrong to accuse her and not the man. You know, it takes two people to commit adultery, right? But we don't hear anything about the man, the other party involved in this. Woman couldn't commit adultery by herself, could she? There had to have been someone else. And most importantly, they were wrong to deny both the authority and the sinlessness of Jesus as they recognized that he had no right to condemn the woman, they simply walked away. Finally, Jesus and only the woman were left. All of her accusers were convicted into walking away. They left. Okay, let's look at uh, what our study guide says about this in page 26. Someone read those paragraphs, please. After all, she was 
Jesus wrote and he spoke. Question number three on page 26. What kinds of stones do we often throw today? Verbal stones. Verbal stones. Okay. Another question, another way of putting that question is how does Jesus' statement in verse 7 influence our everyday actions and attitudes? These are all kinds of stones. Okay, let's uh, look at uh, the last two verses, verses uh, 10 and 11, on page 23. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? As no one condemned you, no one will be answered. Even if I condemn you, said Jesus. Okay, now notice verse 10. Jesus stood up after writing on the ground, wrote all these the, the things all these fellows were doing, but whatever he wrote on the ground that convicted these fellows. After he finished that, he stood up and he focused on the woman. Uh, for the first time in all of this scenario, he speaks to the woman. Now notice in this whole scenario, he's speaking to the leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, and they had brought the accuser. Didn't say anything to the woman up to this point. Now he's speaking to the woman personally. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Of all the things he could have asked her, why did he ask these two questions? Of course he knew the answer, and the answer was obvious, right? But why? Clearly, he wasn't concerned with teaching the crowd or with bragging about how he had once again defeated his enemies. Okay, clearly that was evident. His entire focus was on this frightened woman who was covered in guilt and shame. Jesus asked these two questions in order to help the woman see that 
even though she was guilty of a terrible sin, no one had condemned her. No one was going to stone her. Doesn't say that she wasn't guilty. And then look at verse 11. No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Her answer was simple and profound. No one, Lord, not a single soul, as we would say today. Jesus led her to say aloud that even though she deserved to be punished, there was no one who would condemn her and carry out her execution. Calling Jesus Lord probably was merely a sign that she respected his authority after she'd all that she had witnessed him saying and, and how he dealt with the, with, the, with the religious leaders. She gave him uh, the kind of respect he deserved in terms of his authority. Not that she recognized his divinity or that she had put any faith in him as a Lord and Savior. She just recognized that he dealt with these men with the authority that no one else could, could ever do. Jesus could have let her go with a simple word of encouragement, but he did so much more, saying, neither do I condemn you. He says, no one else condemn you? Well, I'm not gonna condemn you either. She recognized his authority to set her free. But now she heard him declare he would not condemn her either. She was guilty, remember now, but she was not condemned. Though Jesus did have the authority to condemn her, he explicitly refused to do so. Let's look at the paragraphs on page 27. Someone want to read those, please? I used to wonder about Jesus' command in verse 11. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. That's it? Just go and don't do it again? Did Jesus let the woman off too easily? In reality, Jesus neither ignored nor casually dismissed the woman's sin. In fact, Jesus openly acknowledged her sin. Just as importantly, however, his words called her to repentance. How could Jesus offer such forgiveness and grace? After all, he is God, the sinless, perfect Son of God. The answer is that, while sin must be punished, Jesus knew he would shortly be taking the punishment she deserved. He was about to die for her sins and ours. Jesus freely offered forgiveness, but that forgiveness was not cheap. Notice the order of Jesus' words. He offered forgiveness before he called her to repent and start anew. You have to be right with God before you can do right for God. I preached on this passage one Sunday at my church. A young lady I had never met came to me after the service and told me her story. Five years before, she was a drug addict. Her kids had been taken from her. Just one month before that Sunday, she had overdosed and almost ended her life. But while she was in the hospital, different members of our church went to see her. They came at different times and on different days, but each one placed a stone beside her bed and said, I cannot cast a stone at you. I just want you to know that I love you and am praying for you. 
This woman showed showed me a big bag, showed me a bag with seven small stones. She said, I keep these stones as a reminder of what Jesus has done for me. Every time someone left a stone beside her bed, it was like Jesus was standing by her bedside saying, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. And now here she was in church with her kids because Jesus has set her free. What a beautiful picture of God's amazing grace. Jesus did, my friend, what he did for the woman in John 8. And he will do the same thing for you. Okay. Interesting, isn't it? So Jesus refused to condemn this poor woman. He didn't just simply dismiss her. Before he let her go, he added a command. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. Yes, she was free to go, but he challenged her to walk in a new way of life. Both Jesus and the woman knew she was guilty of being a sinner. His words imply that this was not the first time she had committed sexual sin. Perhaps a pattern of life was similar to that of the Samaritan woman Jesus encountered on his way from Judea to Galilee, as recorded in John chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. In both cases, Jesus could have adopted a legalistic, judgmental tone. By Jewish religious standards, both these women were notorious sinners. However, in both situations, Jesus focused on the future rather than their past. He urged this woman to turn from her sins and begin a new life. Of course, we know that the only way any of us can make such a drastic change is by what? The grace of God. But we aren't told about this woman's response. Did she follow Jesus' command? Or did she return to her former way of life? We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. What we know for certain is what kind of Savior Jesus is. While he loves without limit, offering forgiveness of all sins to those who repent and believe in him, he expects his followers to trust and obey his commands. No words better describe Jesus and his mission than those of John 1.17. For the laws was given to Moses, but grace and truth came through who? Jesus Christ. Last question, or fourth question, as we wrap it up here. Uh, when have you experienced grace? We've all experienced grace at some point or another, right? It's an ongoing experience. We experience grace all the time, but sometimes we don't recognize it as grace. And question number five, how can we reflect God's grace and forgiveness to others? How can we do that? We've heard the story about Jesus and this woman, this notorious sinner she's been described. How can we, hearing the story, reading the story, reflect God's grace and forgiveness to others? Be kind, okay. Forgive. Go and do likewise. Stop sowing stones. We like to throw stones, don't we? Yeah. So that's one way that we can show grace and forgiveness to others. We are quick to condemn. And that's one way we can take Jesus' example. So remember the point. We deserve punishment, but God forgives. And Jesus demonstrated that. Okay, let's look at a couple of points on how we can live this out as we close here. 
uh, three points that we can consider options for following uh, during the coming week in response to how we're going to apply what Jesus did here in this lesson. Pray for others. Use the prayer request section on page six to nine, that is of your study guide, uh, and list at least three friends or family members who do not know Christ. Pray daily for their salvation and ask God to give you opportunities to share the gospel with each one of them. Okay? As a practical assignment. Number two, share your experience. People often think Christians are supposed to be perfect. Therefore, opening up about the mistakes you've made and the forgiveness you've received can make the gospel message seem more approachable. In other words, you can show persons by your sharing that you're not perfect either. Well, we missed one, right? Didn't we miss one? Thank God. We thank God. Okay, we missed the one. Set aside time, an extended time or period this week to thank God for his gifts of forgiveness. Praise him for what he has done in your life. Okay, and then we go back to the story that we began with. Uh, the man and his neighbor, Mr. John. Remember my neighbor, Mr. John? He could do what was right. He couldn't do what was right, forgive, until he experienced God's forgiveness himself. I shared the good news of Jesus with him, and right there in the snow, Mr. John prayed to receive Christ. What will you do with God's gracious offer of forgiveness?